Second Chronicles chapter 25 on our journey through the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation on Sunday nights. If you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave and get their attention and uh, they'll get a Bible into your hands so you can follow along with your own eyes. As I mentioned this morning, and I would do every so often, but uh, no one should you really don't want to be coming to, to church without a Bible. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes we don't know to get a Bible and all. But don't ever trust any speaker so much or any Bible teacher that you aren't testing what it is that uh, he is saying from that your own Bible sitting on your own lap. Otherwise, you're trusting us too much. And so it's a good thing to be able to hear what's being taught, but then check it against the Bible with your own eyes. We come to chapter 25 of Second Chronicles this evening, and we left off last week with the death of uh, the evil king of uh, Joash of the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, he turned from God, we remember, at the death of his mentor Jehoiada, and he introduced idolatry into the land during the latter part of his reign. And and he was such a, a despicable human being that when Jehoiada, who he owed his life to, uh, his son, Zechariah, confronted him concerning his idolatry and what he was doing uh, to the nation of Judah as a result of it, that he ordered the death of this, uh, this prophet. And uh, judgment uh, came upon uh, Judah and upon uh, uh, Joash for it. And uh, ultimately, he was uh, uh, killed in, in battle, suffered a defeat rather in, in battle, and then was ultimately assassinated by uh, some who were close to him. Probably they didn't like uh, what he had introduced into Judah and uh, the problems that they were now having, not only in terms of idolatry, but now God's judgment upon them and international problems as a result. So then Amaziah, his son, were told, reigned in his place, the final verse of chapter 24. And we're told that Amaziah was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. That's a fairly lengthy reign. And his mother's name was Jehoadan of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a loyal heart, not with a complete heart is what that word loyal means. It means whole or entire or complete. And so he kind of you remember Jesus was asked about what were the what was the greatest single commandment of the 613 laws that were contained are contained in the law of Moses. And uh, he declared that the and he pointed it back to the religious leader and said, what's your take on that? And he said, well, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul and all of your strength. And Jesus affirmed that is the single greatest commandment, love God, the vertical relationship in life. And then he said, the second one is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so, but this whole, that word all is important. We think about heart, mind, soul, strength, uh, love God with the, with our thinking, with our minds, with our heart, with our emotions, with our soul, 
what we are by the Holy Spirit in our lives, with our bodies, how we use our bodies. All of this is in the original creation of Adam and Eve. All of this was to uh, express, uh, you know, to live for God, to express beauty on God's behalf and to live for God's purposes. And so we have that privilege of doing that. But that word all is important and to be wholehearted in our relationship with the Lord. The problem with being half hearted in having half a heart for God and then half a heart for something else in life other than God or something, certainly something sinful, as is going to be the case with him, uh, is so often that other half ends up uh, winning out over the long haul. And God knows how we've been made. If we're going to uh, follow something successfully, uh, we are going to have to do it wholeheartedly. And that includes our relationship with the Lord. Otherwise, we open ourselves up to what's going to happen to Amaziah here. And that is his love for God is ultimately going to go by the wayside and it's going to be replaced by his uh, his heart being captured by other things. And so it's important for us to think about that tonight. Um, if we sit here and we say, well, I, I, I'm, I've got a half hearted relationship with the Lord or I've got a, a lukewarm relationship with the Lord. Jesus spoke to the church of Laodicea and he said, because their love for him was lukewarm, he said, I'm going to spew or vomit you out of my mouth. When you've got a, when you've got a divided heart or in a, a disloyal heart in a relationship with God, now you have a relationship with God that doesn't please God, but it doesn't please man. Somewhere we're going to be forced to land one way or the other. And when a heart is divided, there's always the danger that it will land on the wrong side. And I, I'm not the old wise owl, but I've been walking with the Lord since 1980. And I know when this kind of condition exists in a human heart that very often, and I would say most often, it ends up very, very badly as it's going to end up badly for Amaziah. So just a simple warning from the scriptures where it's where if our heart is divided toward God and to, or toward some particular as well as toward some particular sin or self-will or something like that, it's a very dangerous condition to live in. We're to live for God wholeheartedly. Now, it happened as soon as the kingdom was established for him that he then executed his servants who had murdered his father, the king. They had assassinated him. He did that in accordance with the law of Moses. They had shed innocent blood. However, he did not execute their children, uh, showed them mercy, but did as was written in the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded, saying, The fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall the children be put to death for their fathers, but a person shall die for their own sin. And so this was commendable on his part in the ancient world, certainly apart from the law of Moses. Uh, you would uh, very, you would just not only kill the fathers, but then you would kill all of the children and the bloodline, lest they would grow up bitter and then uh, end up leading some kind of a rebellion against you. And so they kind of dealt with it that way. But to Amaziah's credit, he was uh, faithful to the Lord here early in his reign. And moreover, Amaziah gathered Judah together and he set over them captains of thousands and captains of hundreds, according to their father's house throughout all Judah and Benjamin. And he numbered these numbers of men. He's putting a military together. 
and he numbered them from 20 years old and above. You had to be that age to be uh, in the military. And he found them to be 300,000 choice men able to go to war who could handle spear and shield. And so... Uh, skilled, trained warriors. So 300,000, you know, as we've been going through the historical books, this is a much smaller number than uh, Judah has had earlier, and certainly when the nation was combined, a much larger military. He has uh, um, uh, plans for this military, and he feels that this 300,000-man force is a little too small for what he wants to accomplish. So we're told in verse 16, he also hired 100,000 mighty men of valor from the northern kingdom of Israel, and he did so for 100 talents of silver. So 33 and a quarter tons of silver. He hired an extra 100,000 experienced kind of mercenary skilled soldiers in order to uh, attack the Edomites. But as he's done this now and he's preparing for battle and he's still kind of on the good side of, uh, you know, walking with God and being faithful that half of his life. A man of God came to him saying, O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you, for the Lord is not with Israel, the northern kingdom, and he is not with any of the children of Ephraim. Also a reference to Israel, Ephraim being the largest tribe of the northern kingdom of Israel. So he has aligned himself now to go into battle, and he's aligned himself or made a part of his military force, the children of Israel, who were very, very wicked at that time. And so here's a classic case of here he is. He's going into battle. He wants God's help. He wants God to be mightily involved in the battle. But then he chooses to involve people that God can't bless. So he unequally yokes himself. And that's why the Bible says we're not to to yoke ourselves with the ungodly. It creates a problem for God. God loves us as we walk with. Well, he loves us as children. He loves his children. And and so he wants to bless us. He wants to give Amaziah victory here. But now that he's aligning himself with wicked people, it creates a problem for God. We don't want to create problems for God, especially when we're going into battle and we're always in battle as Christians in a spiritual warfare. So we want to be confident that God has every reason that we can give him uh, to bless us the way that he wants to. So when we align ourselves with the wicked, that creates a problem for God because he wants to bless us, but he can't bless the wicked. And if he blesses us, then it's going to miscommunicate the word to the world, his attitude toward the wicked. So when we align ourselves with wicked people or uh, evil people, ungodly people, we really complicate things for God and we really harm his full ability uh, to bless us, which is his heart to do. And so this is a uh, this is why the Bible says that we're to come out from among them and be separate. We go into battle and uh, in, 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 into life and obeying the Lord with those that are walking with the Lord and who love the Lord. But uh, so he's warned here not to to go into battle with this mercenary force of 100,000. And he's told that the stakes of this is, but if you go, I mean, he's got a choice to do that. Now he's going to put him in a headlock, then be gone. Go ahead and do it. Be strong in battle. Be as strong as you want to be in that battle. Even so, God shall make you fall before the enemy, for God has power to help 
and to overthrow. So the warning, if you go into this battle the way that you're doing here with your noggin, where what's most important to you is, uh, is not the honor of God in this battle, but something else, then you will suffer defeat. And then Amaziah said to the man of God, but, you know, don't ever answer God's instruction with the word but. Because the word but means forget everything that you've heard before and now I'm going to act as if it wasn't spoken to me. But what shall we do about the hundred, the, the, uh, hundred talents which I have given to the troops of Israel? And so he's immediately worried about the money. He says, all right, I've, I'm, I've, already, I've already made this investment. I'm already in this business deal. I've already, uh, uh, you know, got one very large foot committed into this situation where I've united myself with the ungodly. And if I back out now, I'm going to lose all of the money. So for him at this point in time, money is more important to him than being obedient to God and having the favor of God. He's going to turn here and realize that. Uh, no amount of money or loss of money in the world is worth being on the wrong side of God and not living life in the confidence that he is going to bless me. I mean, what dollar amount do you put on that? Being able to put your head down on the pillow at night at the end of a day and say, my life is in a place that God can bless me however he wants to without creating any complications for him. I mean, that's that's a rich life to walk in that kind of of a peace. So he's whatever loss we have to take uh, to be in that kind of a place with God, then we take that. Uh, financial loss on things and we just say, all right, I made a dumb decision. I didn't pray and I got involved in this. And what I want more than anything else in life is to know that I'm on the right side of God, obeying him, giving him opportunity to bless and lead my life. And and then you make that decision. The man of God helped uh, uh, Amaziah uh, understand this. And he said, the Lord is able to give you much more than this. The Bible says that our God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Now, um, in other words, he's fabulously wealthy. He didn't look and go, oh, no, uh, 33 and a quarter, uh, you know, tons of silver. Oh, that's a terrible loss. You're right. All right. Let's see. I've got a pickle here. What are we going to do? It's nothing for God to restore any amount of money or financial loss that we face or any kind of loss that we face and being faithful to him. How, do we have any ranchers in the room here tonight? Just a quick raise your hand if you're if you can if you do cattle, anybody do cattle. OK, well then I can just act like an authority up here then. So I don't know, a zillion years ago when I was working for the phone company um, before I became a pastor, I, I forget what it was, but I, we were going by some field and there was a bunch of cattle out in the field and all. And I forget what they had said that these cattle were worth per cattle, per little cattleette or whatever they are. That, but I mean, it was an astronomical sum and it really gave me a sense for our God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I mean, just you multiply times and just a, a you know, gigantic a sum of money. And so this is but these are this is a real life here. This is the places that we can find ourselves in uh, with prayerless decisions. And uh, what are we going to do? There's money involved, all of this. And, and the man of God says uh, money, money. He didn't quite say 
it that way. That's a very liberal uh, translation of verse 19. Uh, Money is no big deal. Obedience to God is everything. And so Amaziah, he discharged the troops uh, that had come to him from Ephraim to go back home. And so he said, we don't need you anymore. And therefore, their anger was greatly aroused against Judah, and they returned home in great anger. So this was probably a great insult to them. They didn't understand. They certainly, the northern kingdom of Israel wasn't walking with God, so they didn't get any of this trying to obey God. And what do you mean we're rejected by God and you can't go into battle with us and all that? So you got the personal insult angle of this. But also, you would hire these soldiers in the ancient world for a minimal sum of money, which is represented there in the silver. That wasn't a huge amount of money compared to what kings had at their disposal in those days, with the idea that they would then get a share of the loot following a victory. So they're upset not only with the insult, but that they have been uh, robbed of, of an opportunity for gain. And so uh, then Amaziah, he strengthened himself and leading his people. He went to the Valley of Salt and he killed 10,000 of the people of Seir, which were the Edomites. And uh, also the children of Judah took captive 10,000 uh, 10, uh, alive of the Edomites. They brought them to the top of the rock. And they cast them down from the top of the rock so that they were all dashed in pieces. Now, that's a very unusual uh, characteristic uh, of uh, military uh, ascribed to the Jews in the Old Testament, even at their worst. And so here you've got a situation where could be a couple of things, could be a lot of things, but maybe a couple of reasons for running them off the cliff might have been that. Uh, Amaziah and Judah have now fallen down to the level of the nations around them in terms of warfare. This wouldn't have been an uncommon activity in the ancient world uh, among those that didn't know the Lord or the Bible wasn't the standard for their conduct. It could be that the Edomites were guilty of some unnamed atrocity uh, that then uh, caused them to deal with them in this way, or it could have been something else we're not really told. But as for the soldiers of the army, which Amaziah had discharged the children of Israel so that they uh, would not go with him to battle on their way back up to the northern kingdom of Israel. They raided the cities of Judah from Samaria to Beth Horon, and they killed 3000 in them and they took much spoil. So you've denied us the spoil over the Edomites. We will spoil your land while your military is concentrated in the south uh, toward the Edomites. And so that's what they did. Now, there was it was so now it was so after Amaziah came from the slaughter of the Edomites that he brought the gods of the people of Seir, uh, the Edomite gods, and he set them up to be his gods. And he bowed down before them and he burned incense to them. Okay, let's just take a break. This is like a stupid moment. Why in the world would you adopt the gods of? of the people that you just conquered and replaced the God that gave you the victory in that battle uh, with the gods of the people that you just defeated. The fact that these gods of Edom did not stand up in Amaziah's face and call them stupid was a sign that they weren't true gods. 
So it's completely illogical. They're moving to the worship of the lesser from the worship of the the greater. Absolutely illogical. And therefore, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Amaziah. I mean, think about how thankless that is. God has given him a great victory. He knows that God did it. God sent him a prophet, the whole deal. There's nothing unclear about this. He didn't say, well, this is, you know, just an accident that we had this victory. God gave him the victory. God blessed them in this way. And then his response to it is to turn away uh, from the Lord. And so, of course, this is going to upset the Lord. And it did. And he sent a prophet who said to him, why have you sought the gods of the people which could not rescue their own people from your hand. You just love it when God makes just, a, just tremendous clarity there. Why, why in the world would you do this? They couldn't, defend, they couldn't defend their people from me, and, and you've changed me for them as, as the false gods. And so it was as he talked with him, as this prophet was speaking to him, that the king said to him, have we made you the king's counselor who made who called on you to enlighten us with wisdom? And he ordered him to cease, saying, why should you be killed under the threat of death? And then the prophet ceased and said, uh, this is the prophet who wants to get one more word in. God bless him. He said, I know that God has determined to destroy you because you have done this and have not heeded my advice. And so under the risk of death, he finishes the message that God had given him to declare. And that is, if he does not repent uh, based upon this message, then you let him know that he's going to be destroyed as a result of it. So here he is. He's just terribly lifted up in pride. Somehow he feels that this Victory that he's won is uh, associated with his great talents, his great abilities and all. And he can ju- and, and doesn't really have too much to do uh, with God. And so uh, he switches his allegiances in terms of idolatry. And that pride is going to get him into uh, a lot of trouble here, as we're going to see in uh, here in just a moment. Now, Amaziah, the king of Judah, he asked advice. And he sent of his counselors, and as a result of this counsel, he sent to Joash, the son of Jehoiahaz, the son of Jehu, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And he said, come, let us face one another in battle. And so he, in essence, this is a declaration of war. He's defeated the Edomites, and so now he's feeling his uh, weedy, so to speak, and now he wants to take on the northern kingdom of, uh, of Israel. And he might even have in his mind a little bit uh, the idea that they had spoiled the land on their way out uh, from Judah back up to the north of Israel. But we're going to see in a moment that what his real problem and motivation is here uh, is pride. His heart is lifted up in pride following the defeat of uh, the Edomites. And now he just he wants to take on uh, the nation in the north. Come, let us face one another in battle. And Joash, king of uh, Israel sent to Amaziah, the king of Judah. He got the message from him and he sent him a message back. And this, this guy has an artistic side. It isn't just going to say this, thus, this, that. He gives him a little kind of a parable here. He said the thistle, which is just kind of a good for it. It was lowliest kind of shrub or brush, undergrowth, we would say, in a forest. He said the thistle 
that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon. And the cedars of Lebanon, these beautiful high cedars, just glorious trees. And so this thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon saying, give your daughter to my son as wife. And so this is how the northern kingdom of the, uh, the king of the north viewed this. He viewed his military and his nation as the great cedar, and he viewed the military of Judah and the king of Judah as this little thistle uh, coming to the great cedar and saying, give me your daughter as wife to my son, which was basically uh, in the ancient world a way of communicating that we are equal. We can exchange equally. Well, uh, the, north, the king in the north, uh, Joash, he doesn't. Uh, he doesn't uh, see them as equals. He finishes his parable and he says a wild beast that was in Lebanon just happening through the forest there. He passed by and as he's just making his way through as an aside, he trampled the thistle. That's how important this thistle was. And he's speaking about uh, the uh, Israeli military of the northern kingdom of Israel being this wild beast. They'll just they'll knock down Judah in the same way that a wild beast walks over a weed in the forest. So that was his warning. And he said, indeed, you uh, you say that you've defeated the Edomites. Your heart is lifted up to boast. Listen, you're, you've had a great victory. You're feeling really good about that. But what you need to do related to this battle is just stay home. For why shall you meddle with trouble that you should fall, you and Judah with you? And it's really he's an ungodly man. But this is very, very sound advice. Don't out of pride, don't stick your nose into what is none of your business because you're going to get it punched. And so what you're doing here is you're in your pride is you're just setting yourself up to end up getting uh, humbled. Enjoy your little victory that you had, but but you're in single A. You're not ready for the big leagues. Uh, just enjoy uh, your little victory. But Amaziah wouldn't listen uh, in his pride, for it came from God. Uh, his, his pride is setting him up for God's uh, judgment and chastening, that he might give them into the hand of their enemies because they sought the gods of Edom. And so God is going to judge uh, Amaziah uh, and Israel now for their idolatry. And so King Joash, king of Israel, he went out. He and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his tent. And then Joash, the king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Joash, the son of Jehoiahaz, at Beth Shemesh. He brought him to Jerusalem. He then broke down the wall uh, of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, 400 cubits. So he comes in and uh, in the, he's, he's upset at this point. So he comes into to Israel, which was a walled city at the time, and he just basically tore out 200 yards of the wall just to say, not only did I defeat you out here in battle, but any time I want to go into your capital city and tear down your fence, your defenses, I can do that. And then he took all the gold and silver, all the articles that were found in the house of God with Obed-Edom, the treasures of the king's house and hostages, and he returned uh, to Samaria. So he stripped Jerusalem uh, of the wealth. And so that one of the great lessons here of Amaziah is not to meddle out of pride. And there is a 
a danger that when God uses us, there's a couple dangers here with Amaziah. He defeats the Edomites and then he heads into idolatry. When we saw uh, with the children of Israel in the book of Judges and that whole cycle that they went through of, of blessing and then going into idolatry and then and spiraling down into bondage and then getting hitting rock bottom, crying out to God and repentance again and God restore him again to only begin the whole cycle over again. One of the hardest things uh, that we have uh, that we deal with, and it's kind of a funny thing, the perversity of our flesh. But one of the hardest things that we deal with is prosperity as God's people when God blesses us. And it really is important when God uses you, whether he might use you to witness to a co-worker or to a fellow student, or he might use you to teach a Bible study or use you to, to impact somebody in some, so many different ways. And you walk away from that. And I mean, we're walking, you know, one foot off of the ground. We're just floating, as it were. And it's such a blessing. And we realize, wow, that was a mountaintop experience right there. And at those kind of times, it's important to really step back and to realize that God did all of that and not to get lifted up in pride because it'll get us into trouble to think that that God used me because of something intrinsically good about myself or something like that. How we know that we've been lifted up in pride is if following that victory, we allow the introduction of some idolatry or sin into our lives. That's always a telltale sign that we're not being sober following a, a victory. Another thing that happens when God uses us and, and he's going to use all of our lives as Christians is there is that tendency toward pride. And one of the characteristics of pride that really gets us in trouble is where God has used us. And now we think death, you know, uh, knowledge is going to die with us or whatever it is. And we begin to stick our nose into everybody's business that is none of our business. And then pretty soon we're going to get uh, somebody's going to pinch our nose related to that. So the importance of not uh, meddling, as Joash said to him, uh, to our own Hurt. And so there are very unique temptations that we face as Christians uh, when we're kind of rock bottom sometimes in life. And then there are unique temptations that we face when we're on top of the world following victories. And we need to be uh, aware of those unique kind of challenges that we face uh, when we're in either one of those uh, situations. And so it was. Uh, and now it was so after Amaziah came from the slaughter uh, of, wait a second. All right, here we go. I'm finding my, my place here. I have, listen, the way that I go, I don't want to lose half a chapter by going back. Okay, here we are. Amaziah, verse 25. The son of Joash, king of Judah, he lived 15 years after the death of Joash, the king of Israel. And uh, so the rest of the acts of Amaziah from first to last, indeed, are they not written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel, probably speaking of first and second kings. And after that time, Amaziah turned away from following the Lord 
And uh, they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish, uh, but they sent after him to Lachish, and they killed him there, and then they brought him on horses, and they buried him with his fathers, uh, not with the kings, but with his fathers in the city of Judah. So he outlived the, northern king, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel by 15 years, whether he uh, finished out his reign in Jerusalem, was allowed to return to Jerusalem, or whether he returned to Jerusalem late in those 15 years. At any rate, there were a lot of people that were upset with him over having led the nation into idolatry, and, uh, and they did not want him to be king, and so they took it into their hands uh, to assassinate him. And they must have been very powerful men because he tried to hide from them and, and uh, uh, get away from them, and they, they hunted him down and put an end to him. Now, all of the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and they made him king uh, instead of his father Amaziah. And he, uh, so he, 16 years old, when he became the king, one of the first things that he did is he built the city of Elath, and he restored it to Judah after the king uh, rested with his fathers. Now, Elath belonged to the Edomites up to this point, and it was, it's known modern day today in Israel as Elat, a, a resort city also a shipping kind of city for both Jordan and for Israel, so very strategic for trade in the south. So to control this city was very, very significant, and it was a significant accomplishment uh, for him to regain that city from the control of, uh, from, uh, of the Edomites after they had uh, taken it away from Judah during the reign of Jehoram. And Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king. He reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. Wow. How'd you like to have a king for 52 years? I mean, you live your whole life. Be like having a, working on some great, a civil project where you begin and to build this bridge or to build this railroad or whatever is going to take 110 years all of your life and the life of the next generation to do it. I mean, so here is this very, very long reign. And Uzziah is going to introduce into the history of Judah a prosperity, a tremendous prosperity uh, into the land. He is largely a good king, though he, mar he mars his legacy late in his life. But he, he really brought tremendous stability and prosperity to the land of Judah. That's why when you go to Isaiah chapter 6, and probably one of the most famous chapters in the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And so what he is in this place now where Isaiah is fairly early in his prophetic ministry at this point, and basically the entire nation of Judah is massively impacted by the death of Uzziah. It has left the earthly throne that has been, by and large, an influence for righteousness in the land. It is now empty. And nobody knows what is the next king going to be like. And so what does the Lord do with Isaiah? He raises his eyes 
to the throne that is higher than the throne of man. And the year that King Uzziah died, dominated by the death of Uzziah, I saw the Lord, the throne that is never empty, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple. And so this is the context of, uh, of uh, that statement, his death at the end of the 52 years. And so he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all his father Amaziah had done. And so he's one of these good kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. And uh, he will uh, falter here a little bit at the end. But this is by and large, he was a, a righteous king. And he sought God in the days of Zechariah. This is not Zechariah the prophet that the, the book is named after in the Bible. It's a different Zechariah. But he sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding and the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. So as a young man or as a young king, he surrounded himself with deeply spiritual men. And so apparently Zechariah was kind of a spiritual uh, mentor uh, to him and uh, coming to the throne at such a young age. The prophets of Joel, Amos, and Hosea, they were all prophesying uh, at this time. Then there's a listing of some of his accomplishments in verse 6. Now he went out and he made war against the Philistines. He broke down the wall of Gath and the wall of Jebna and the wall of Ashdod, and he built cities around Ashdod and among the Philistines. And God helped him against the Philistines, against the Arabians who lived in Gerbaal, and against the uh, Muonites. And also the Ammonites brought tribute to Uzziah. So Israel was surrounded uh, by these perennial enemies, and during uh, Uzziah's reign, he was able to beat them back, kind of push them back for a generation so that Judah could know peace. And so he, he had, God gave them great victories over these very, very dangerous enemies that surrounded Judah. And as a result of this, his fame spread as far as the entrance of Egypt, for he became exceedingly strong. And Uzziah uh, then built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, at the valley gate, and at the corner buttress uh, of the wall. Uh, then he fortified them. And so this time of peace and quiet, he kind of de starts, he deals with some um, infrastructure projects. It's always nice when a country, a nation is in, enjoying peace, enjoying a period of prosperity, and they say, well, let's improve our rail system, let's improve our roads, let's improve our bridges, these kind of things. It takes a period of prosperity to do that. And to his credit, he really uh, advanced, uh, advanced instead of just building all these palaces for himself and all, uh, he, he did good things, building projects for the nation. And also he built towers in the desert. He dug many wells, for he had much livestock, so he was a rancher. Uh, both in the lowlands and in the plains. He also had farmers and vine dressers in the mountains and in Carmel, for he loved the soil. I love this picture of Uzziah right here. He's a rancher and he's a farmer. He loved the soil. Good Central Valley boy. And, uh, but it just tells us what his roots were. He's just a good, solid, 
uh, man. And, and, and we want to understand this about him because when he fails a little bit later in the chapter, we realize, okay, well, this is, if that can happen to this kind of guy, you know, I got to be alert to it in my own life. And so he's just doing a lot of great things. He's a down to earth kind of guy, just doing what's good for the nation. And and uh, here in verse 10, he's enlar- he's enlarging. Essentially, what he's doing is he's enlarging the agricultural capacity of the nation. Uh, and so always, always significant to have uh, a sufficient food supply. And moreover, Uzziah had an army of fighting men who went out to war by companies according to the number on their rolls as prepared by uh, J.E.L., the scribe, and Maaseah of the officer under the hand of uh, Hananiah, one of the king's captains. And so had a very well-organized and well-disciplined army. The total number of the chief officers of the mighty men uh, of valor was 2,600. And so not only did he have a great military, but he made sure that they had uh, great officers that were a part of that military. And under their authority was an army of 307,500 men uh, that made war with mighty power. So these were a tremendous smaller army, but very uh, tremendous, powerful army to help the king against the enemy. And then Uzziah prepared for them, for the entire army, shields, spears, helmets, body armor, bows, and slings to cast stones. So he he made sure that his army was very well equipped, takes money to do that, takes prosperity to do that. And so he spent money on national defense. And then in addition to that, he made devices in Jerusalem very inventive men in terms of military. Uh, they uh, invented by skillful men. These were some of the new kind of weapons that came out of Israel during that time uh, to be on the towers, uh, uh, these devices to place on the towers and on the corners to shoot arrows and large stones. And so they developed these catapults to shoot these gigantic arrows and shoot these gigantic rocks and into uh, approaching armies, kind of uh, ancient uh, artillery. And uh, so this is the kind of thing that they were developing. Interesting, even Israel today, how so often they will take um, the military equipment of the rest of the world. And then if they can buy that, bring it back to Israel and then analyze the whole thing and then make it even better and uh, and then uh, and then sell it to the rest uh, of the world. And so. Uh, characterizes them even to this day. And so, as a result of this, his fame spread far and wide, for he was marvelously helped till he became strong. So again, now he reaches this point, just like his father did, where he's just doing great, absolutely great, prosperous, everything is wonderful. And now in this place of prosperity, the tendency toward pride, which is what he's going to fall prey to here. Uh, he was marvelously helped, and then he became strong. And this is where he's going to run uh, into his, his problems here, beginning in verse 16. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up. This is pride. And, and it was lifted up to his destruction. Pride is a dangerous thing. We talk about, we say some, the, the common saying in the culture is that pride comes before a fall. Not quite biblical. The Bible says that a haughty spirit comes before a fall and pride before destruction. 
And that's what he that's what he's going to face is, is more than a little bit of a fall. He's, he's going to face something very, very serious because of his pride. One of the problems with pride is that the first thing that it does is it incapacitates within us our ability to recognize it. So we're too proud to know that we're proud. And you think about that. If you're like me, you're sitting in the seat going, oh, no, what do I do? Then what's our defense against that? The word of God. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? Not you, buckaroo, you know. But so the word of God will speak to us. It's a living book by the Holy Spirit. It will say things to us that nobody else will say to us. We have to have a hearing heart related to it. But this book is what protects us uh, from pride and, and the recognition of pride in our lives. And so his act of pride was he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering into the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So he's no longer um, satisfied with just being the king. Uh, this is kind of maybe boring after all of this time. He's done everything that he wants to do. And now he wants to enter into the role of a priest. And only descendants of Aaron could offer incense to the Lord at the temple. And so he just shows up one day and he decides he's going to be a priest. And he's going to start offering incense there at the temple. Now, that wasn't unusual again in the ancient world. Because most kings in those days uh, took both the office of a king and a priest. Who better to represent the people before these false gods than the most powerful man in the land? And so this was very, very common in the nations around Uzziah. And so here he gets kind of full of himself and he decides he's going to combine the office of a priest and the king. Now, one of the things that he, that he's doing here, it's a terrible, terrible uh, violation of the law of Moses. I mean, again, this was this exercise of this burning of the incense was very limited only to the priests. And so by him doing this and in violation, clear violation of the law of Moses, this guy is just absolutely swollen with pride. The Old Testament high priest would go in every morning and every evening and offer incense uh, to the Lord on behalf of the people. And it was uh, 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 the incense was an expression of our prayers being lifted up to the Lord, the prayers of the Old Testament saints morning and evening to him. And so what Uzziah is doing here is rather than modeling what God wanted through the Old Testament priesthood that we uh, approach God solely in prayer, solely on the basis of the high priest of God's choosing. What Uzziah is modeling here is that we can approach God on any terms that we want. You don't need a high priest. Anybody, what, what do these priests think that they're doing and God laying all of this stuff out? We're all equal. We can all be priests. We can all come to God however we want. And, and God's going to put this to bring all of this to a screeching hold. You think about how many people today, it's very, very applicational today, how many people out of pride refuse to come to God 
on the basis of the high priest of his choosing, who is Jesus himself, and they demand that they can come to him on their own terms. The other thing that Uzziah is doing here that's a great mistake is he is attempting to unite the office of king and priest. That's not his place. God is going to unite the office of king and priest by through a very special person being introduced into human history, and that special person is Jesus himself. So he is taking on a role that is reserved for Jesus alone. So he is trampling, the Bible says, the volume of the book testifies of Jesus. All of this is a picture of Jesus, and he is now going to mar this, because only Jesus was intended to unite the role of the priest and, and of, uh, of the king. And so uh, he comes in and, and he's going to try and do it on his own. And so he's messing up all kinds of things that he doesn't even know uh, that he's messing up. So this is what he attempts to do. And then Azariah the priest went in after him. And with him were 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men. I like that. These guys are going to get in Uzziah's face. All 80 of them. And I mean, you put yourself in their place. This guy has a huge military. He's immensely popular among the people. I mean, they're putting their lives at stake. But they look and they say, the Bible is the Bible. The Word of God is the Word of God. This is what it says. And I don't care if you're a pauper or a king, you don't get to do what you're doing here. I say, give us more men like that and women like that in the body of Christ who will give the word of God and stand for the word of God, whoever or whatever the audience is. And so this is they were valiant men and it, and it requires being valiant, being brave in any time in human history. And, and certainly in our time too, to make these stands for God, uh, no matter who it is that we have as our audience. And so they withstood King Uzziah and they said to him, it is not for you. Uzziah to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense, get out of the sanctuary. <laughs> Man, if I could email these 80 guys, I would just tell them how much I love them. Tell the king, get out of the sanctuary. This is the end of your search for a friendly church. That's not what they were extending to him. Get out of the sanctuary, and here's the reason, for you have trespassed. Now, trespass or transgression in the Old Testament, the word that's used for it, is to sin knowingly. This is not an accident. He knows what the Word of God says, and he's doing it anyway out of his arrogance. The, the highest expression of pride is to disregard what God has to say and do what I want to do anyway. That's, that's the highest expression of pride, and that's what he is doing here. Now, I'm more important and smarter than God. And so they tell him that he's trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord. You're in deep water here in what you're doing. Uzziah's reaction was this. He became furious, and he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. So they stop him, and he just explodes in anger over this. Be careful whether 
again, especially as leaders, and all of us should be leaders in the body of Christ and not followers in this world. But here is a guy that is in a place where his pride is so great, he cannot be corrected, even if he's being corrected from the word of God. So this guy is just completely out of control. I'm the boss. I'm the king. You can't even use scripture to try and reel me back in. And while he was angry with the priests, so up to this point in time, everything's okay. He's, he's angry. He's furious. But he hasn't been smitten with leprosy yet. He still has room to say, you know what? I am so dumb. What in the world am I doing in the temple with a censer in my hand? <laughs> Thank you for stopping me from doing what it is that I'm doing. Thank you for being faithful to God and his word. And if he had done that, if he had been teachable by God and, and by God's messengers, everything would have been different for him. But God gives him the space to repent. He doesn't repent. And so he becomes furious while he was angry with the priests. Now, like heads are going to roll over this leprosy broke out on his forehead, the most obvious part of his body. And before the priests and the house of the Lord, beside the incense altar. So he's standing there and all of a sudden leprosy appears on his forehead. And so God made it very clear who he was choosing between what his word said and the priests and what Uzziah was trying to do. And that his judgment was upon this pride and rebellion of, of Uzziah. Well, leprosy, uh, you certainly didn't want that in the temple. That was a violation of the law of Moses. And uh, so the chief priest, Azariah, all the priests, they looked at him and there on his forehead... I love a video of this. He, this leprosy on his forehead. So they thrust him out of that place. And indeed, he also hurried to get out because the Lord had struck him. And so now he's, he's humble and he realizes uh, he's in, in real trouble here. And so King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. And he dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And then Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. And so he ended up isolated from the population, never again, never again went to the temple because of, of his leprosy. And, and so leprosy always led to a... Um, uh, to a, a life of isolation because it was an incurable disease and they quarantined you in those days. Leprosy is just a beautiful, well, I shouldn't say beautiful. It's a very apt picture of pride um, because pride leads to isolation, always among God's people. It leads to conflict like, like it does here, but it leads to isolation. Think about how many people in churches all over the United States. But I mean, you think about your own church experience if you've walked with the Lord for any period of time. And here is somebody who gets full of themselves and full of pride. And now they're going to try and step into a ministry or into a place of authority that God hasn't called them to. And then godly people have to stand and get in the place. They don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, boy, I hope we can create a split in the church today. But they have to stand up and resist the pride of this man. And then it creates a war within the church. And then if the righteous prevail in that church split, 
Then the other guy leaves, the man that was lifted up in pride, and then he is typically will live the rest of his life or her life isolated from the body of Christ. And they will think that they are living their life of isolation from the rest of the body of Christ because they're doing something punitive toward the body of Christ. And what they don't realize is that their pride and their self-inflicted isolation is keeping the body of Christ safe from the influence of their leprosy and of their pride. And so it's a it's a tremendous picture. Leprosy is of pride. And this is a tremendous picture of its danger and what it ends up uh, producing in a human life. Always a life of of isolation. And so Uzziah, he rested with his fathers. They buried him with his fathers in the field of burial, which belonged to the kings. For they said he is a leper. So they didn't bury him in the royal uh, cemetery uh, because of his leprosy, but in, a, in an adjacent field. And then Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. Well, we'll stop there tonight and we'll pick that up. Uh, chapter 27. Uh, and just want you to know that um, you're going to like chapter 27. <laughs> we get this a good guy here, you know, that doesn't have any problems, uh, does a good job on it. So we'll stop there tonight. I'd like you to